Welcome to The Mixdown. I'm Christopher Fay, the Executive Director of Homestretch. The mission of Homestretch is to empower homeless parents with children by giving them the knowledge, skills, and hope that they need to become self-sufficient. This is our new podcast where we talk about timely issues around homelessness, learn from inspiring stories, and share the hope that is actualized when crisis is turned into opportunity. In our premiere episode, I'm joined by Homestretch graduate, current board member, and tech professional, Sharon Howell. Thank you, Sharon, for joining me today. But first, to share a little bit more about Homestretch for people who might not know about us. We're located in Northern Virginia. We take homeless families with children, put them in homes, and then we surround them with services designed to try and propel them out of poverty. Very individualized services to help people enroll in, uh, to find jobs, to enroll in school, scholarships to help them pay for this schooling. We help them get out of debt, build up savings, repair their credit, restore their health. Essentially, it's very individualized service plans around every family's needs, talents, and aspirations. And the cool thing is most families take advantage of this and make substantial progress um, nine out of 10 families that enter our program complete the program moving into housing they can afford on the income they earn. One of our graduates, Sharon is with us today, is a great example of someone who took advantage of those services and, uh, and really ran with it. And she did such a great job, we invited her to be on our board. Sharon, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm LaSharon Howell, and I am a former client of Homestretch. I entered the program, I believe, in 2012 after um, leaving my home in Texas um, due to domestic violence and homelessness that I was experiencing at the time. And I came here to Virginia to kind of start fresh. And after staying in a woman's shelter, I found Homestretch and was accepted with open arms and everything just springboarded from there as far as um, my trajectory out of homelessness and into a happier and healthier life. When you first entered the program, what did you think your future would look like? I don't think I thought about it. I think I had so many things in my mind of what I thought my future was going to be like. And when I moved here from Texas, I had no idea. I just knew it was going to be better. And I think that I just kind of took baby steps from like one goal to the next, like three months at this shelter and then two years with home stretch. And then I don't think I really stopped and predicted or projected a future. I was just trying to meet the goals to keep my immediate needs and the things that I needed to have for my children um, there and accessible. I think once I was in the program for, I would say six months or so, then I guess I felt like I could breathe and exhale for the first time. You know, my, I had, you know, a job and I was working, um, steadily. My kids were in school. We were in a stable place. And then I felt like I could start looking towards a future of continuing my work as an executive assistant and finishing college and 
being there for my kids to help them through school. Sharon, you went through this experience of, of suddenly becoming homeless as a mother of a young child and as a, and of a teenager. That must have been quite a harrowing experience. What was it like parenting as a homeless mother? It's, it was kind of crazy. I think when, especially survivors of domestic violence, um, you're kind of in like a trauma shock mode. And sometimes you're not even really thinking clearly. You're, you're not thinking about the nurturing aspects of parenthood sometimes. You're just thinking about the bare basic, what can I do to feed, clothe, and house you? And you're not really thinking about like recreation and, and fun stuff. You're just trying to do what you're supposed to do. And I think as a homeless mother, there's a tremendous amount of guilt that I felt. Right. Because... Yeah. I could barely do the parts that I was supposed to do, let alone like the fun stuff. And then also there's a stigma with, you know, what does a homeless person look like? You know, when I tell people I don't have a place to live, like I even had a cousin who said to me, oh, well, you weren't like homeless, homeless. Like you could have gone to your father's house or you could have gone to this place. And that's not always the case. Homelessness is a complicated situation without secure housing, regardless if you're sleeping on someone's couch or staying with a family person. When you don't have your own home, that is homeless. And it's not always, you know, some poor downtrodden ragamuffin on the side of the road. It's people every day walking down the street that look just like everyone else that could be homeless. And I think that was hard because asking for help was difficult. And then when I did ask for help, it was like, I didn't really need it according to whomever I was asking because I didn't seem homeless. Right. One of the things I'd like to comment on, Sharon, that you you pointed out about domestic violence. I think one of the things that most people in our country do not know or have not grasped is the relationship of domestic violence and homelessness, especially when it comes to women with children. 65% 65% of the families in Homestretch have a history of domestic violence. That means that these are women with kids who faced homelessness as an alternative to staying at home with an abusive relationship. What a choice that is to stay yeah. in an abusive home that is so violent that uh, the only uh, rational alternative is to become homeless. And yet that is the case. And it's about 50% of the women with children who are homeless in our country today are homeless principally because of domestic violence. So your case um, was emblematic of many, what many people go through. Yes, unfortunately, many people do go through it and continue to do so to this day. But I think maybe um, I would quote FKA Twigs. I think it's time for people to stop asking the victim, why didn't you leave? And start asking the victimizer, why would you treat someone this way? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's Sharon, looking back at this whole experience, what would you say the principal things are that you've learned? I would say definitely to give myself some grace and to actually write down the kudos for myself. I Remember, I think when you first asked me to be on the board, I was like, I don't really think that I'm an exemplary 
um, graduate. I don't own a house. I'm still working, you know, nine to five, trying to make ends meet kind of thing. And I didn't feel like I had anything to offer. But then as I started doing speaking engagements and being more involved with the board, I began to see what others were seeing, like telling my story and really being like, wow, I accomplished something that is worth sharing. Yes, I don't own a home or whatever, but like you said, everyone's journey is different. And I feel like I have been on one heck of a ride and I'm happy to share that for others to, you know, maybe get off the ride or to persevere and get through it. One of the things that I, I admire the most about you, the Sharon, is your spirit. You have a tremendous uh, sense of hope and also fun. You find humor in things. And I think that is one of the secret ingredients to be able to get through crisis is to be able to find the humor in things so that it helps you balance out and keep moving. Yes. It's important to just, you know, look on the sunny side when you can, but also embrace those times when you can't make a joke out of it or it doesn't feel sunny. It's okay to be down a little bit. But I think when you are kind of looking towards that hope, it helps you to get out of that, that slump a little bit easier. How did Homestretch in particular play a role in your ability to get through this crisis? Like Homestretch is like an eagle with giant wings that swoops down and takes you and cradles you and makes sure you have everything you need. I think um, just allowing me to pursue um, jobs and more education by helping taking care of our family, um, teaching me how to be more financially aware and saving money, um, not charging like full rent, and requiring that 10% and um, that you put into your savings and just, you know, keeping track of just everything. They're just there for every step of the way. The counselor for, um, you know, your mental health. Then you have the credit counseling. Then you have a, um, I forget what it's called, an employment counselor. And mm-hmm. you also have your 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 regular person who you work with on a case manager monthly. Mm-hmm. yes the case manager thank you that you work with on a on a daily basis and you just kind of have you know access to the world I feel like homelessness is very isolating you can go to work and not be homeless in your mind for a minute but when you come out of it you're going back to like to nowhere and you can't really express that to other people when you're out and I feel that Homestretch was one of the first places that I had been to where it wasn't a condescending conversation. Nobody was telling me that I'm okay-ish or I'm not really this needy. I don't need these things. They were like, what do you need? How can we help you? What are your goals? And then they helped you get to those places. It wasn't just like, write these goals down. Good luck. Hope you make it happen. So they were very instrumental in everything that I was able to achieve. Very good. But Sharon, were there people that helped you or, or even I would put it this way, made it harder when you were facing homelessness? Um, I wouldn't say people in particular. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I had some, some growing pains, especially with some people that like, that I stayed with at the shelter who may not have gotten into home stretch or did get into home stretch, but couldn't really stick with um, the requirements of staying in the program. I think it was kind of more of, um, we went from a, like a huddled together situation to a, every person for themselves because at this point we're in this program and if it's not working out for you then okay but I have to do this for me so I think it was hard as far as um fresh relationships that I had built and um just learning how to deal with people who where they are in their own crisis and as opposed to feeling like I can be the helper outer like I am very goal-minded as far as helping people like I'm an executive assistant that's just in my nature to do those things and I had to take a step back to get out of my own way to stop trying to you know help and be the volunteer when I'm already in a program you know and I'm trying to help other people I just had to take the time to help myself and I think that's probably what made it the hardest for me I was getting in my own way right well, a lot of people do find it very difficult in terms of uh, moving out of homelessness and poverty and crisis when it means they sometimes have to create all new relationships. Um, and it can be, as you said, it can be a very isolating experience being homeless. Sometimes uh, it seems as if all your friends just vanish. Yes. Like the old, the old blues song, uh, nobody knows you when you're down and out. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so necessary for programs like Homestretch, because it's, it is simply very, very hard to pull yourself out of the trap of poverty and homelessness uh, on your own. We, we need help. We need others. Let me ask you another question, Sharon. What stereotype would you like to see broken, especially about homelessness? That it's a choice. I feel like people treat homelessness like you chose to lose everything that you have and go live out in uncertain spaces because that's what you want to do. It's, it's more complicated than that. Um, certainly is. It certainly is. I think the stereotype that there's just a one type of homelessness, I think should end. There's so many different ways that people become homeless. It's, it's multifaceted. Yes, indeed it is. My sense, uh, after been in this work for 30-some years, is that when people think it, homelessness is a choice, it's really a way of alleviating themselves of any uh, responsibility of helping. Yes, I could see that. So, LaSharon, tell us about what are you up to these days? What is life like for you now? Life is pretty great, Chris, right now. I started a new job at a large tech company in August, and I just love it. I I love the people. I love the teams. I just love the culture. It's just an amazing um, place, just full of just smart people and funny and nice. It's just really what you would imagine to be um, a really just nice place to work. I look forward to it. There it's work, it's challenging, but it's not unsurmountable and it's definitely not um, grating on my soul. <laughs> That's <laughs> like good, great. Other jobs that I have had. So I really like it. And we moved into a nice, cute little townhouse in Alexandria where I get lots of beautiful sunshine all day <laughs> and there's a yard for the dog. And 
My daughter has a fantastic room and everything is just amazing. I am so delighted to hear that, Sharon. Yes. What do you think everyone should know about family homelessness? Family homelessness, I think everyone should know that it could happen to anyone. And I think um, there's a lot more homeless families out there than you know, unfortunately. And it doesn't just affect the parents, but the kids. And your whole world is different when you don't know where your home is. Exactly. And what, what might be some questions that you think more people should be asking about homelessness? I don't know. I would say, why? Why is there homelessness? Why is there not? Why can't we be like Star Trek? You know, people just, there's no currency. You just find a job that you think is cool, and then you're nurtured into it. Like, why does it have to be a every man for themselves kind of situation? Why can't we help each other? Exactly. I think that the, the, the photos of homelessness that people are accustomed to also is, is usually a, a, an older adult male who has chronic health issues, who might be mentally ill, who might have drug addiction um, issues. Mm-hmm. And almost 50% of the homeless people in this country are mothers with children. So we should also be asking, how in the world do we live in a society that could permit mothers and children to become homeless? Yes. But Sharon, what gives you hope that we might be able to make progress in this issue? Well, home stretch <laughs> definitely gives <laughs> me hope. I, I just think that there's, you can't give up on people. You can't give up on yourself and you can't just be like, why is this so horrible? And just, you know, crumble up. You have to just, if there is no hope, what is there? Why are we here? If we can't hope to make this world better that we all collectively share, what is the purpose? You have to have hope because the alternative is like, you know, what if you don't have a birthday? The alternative is what? You're not aging because you're dead. So I think we have to have hope. We have to look forward to something and we have to really tap into the humanity that we all are born with. I totally agree. You know, Lashira and I often reflect on what is it that makes Homestretch so effective? And I think one of the things that we do is we really do try and ignite hope. So often when we families come to us, they feel so dejected and their lives have had such uh, downturns and so many terrible things have happened and they've tried things and failed and they've lost hope. And they often feel um, completely despairing that any good thing might happen to them. And what we need to do in those situations is create an environment where they can start to feel successful, even if it means they're just succeeding in one little thing that something they try works. And then you set it up so they can try something else and it works and they start to feel better about themselves. And once you've ignited that hope, a door kind of opens back up and they can start achieving things. And uh, one of the things that I love about this work 
is when our graduates say, and they often say, you believed in me more than I believed in myself. And I think what that says to me is that we see the inherent worth in everyone who comes in, and we see that they are capable of doing things as long as they had the right kind of environment, right kind of support. Because um, I believe that most of us are capable of much more than what any of us think we are. Absolutely. Um, but, but we need help. We're, we're, none of us are an island to ourselves. We, we succeed because we take advantage of the support others give us. And you were an example of that, Sharon. We're all very, very proud of you and all that you've done. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really feel like Homestretch is family. It's family. I would like to know your backstory a little bit. Um, how did you get into this work? I have heard you speak about certain things, but I've never really gotten the, the deep dive on that. Can you explain some more? Yes, well, I moved to New York City as a young man to go to school at uh, Columbia University, and uh, I was in the Graduate School of Filmmaking. And Columbia University is right on the edge of Harlem, and a church I was attending there opened a soup kitchen, and I started volunteering in the soup kitchen. And the soup kitchen um, was... Um, full of people every day. There were like hundreds of people that would wait outside this soup kitchen. And uh, I felt like I needed to do more and more. And I eventually over time, I became the, the leader of running the soup kitchen. Um, and so while I was pursuing a career in filmmaking, I had this alternate life of running a soup kitchen, helping homeless, uh, hungry and homeless people. And I decided that I would try and merge the two things. And so I decided I'd try and make a short documentary about men and women who were at that point in New York City living underground in an abandoned portion of an Amtrak train tunnel. This was under Riverside Park on the west side of Manhattan, about 50 blocks of empty train tunnel. And all these men and women had moved down into this train tunnel and created little encampments down there. They cook their food. Some, of you, some people even figured out how to hook up TVs. And, and uh, it was really quite an extraordinary experience. And they became known as the mole people, M-O-L-E, because they lived underground. So I, I cobbled together some money from friends, about $30,000 to rent equipment. These are a camera equipment, sound equipment. This is before the, the era where you could make a film using a, a, an iPhone. You actually needed these big old cameras and big sound equipment and booms and these various things. So I rented this stuff with the idea that I was going to go down into the train tunnel and um, photograph and interview some of these homeless men and women. And I couldn't get anyone to insure me. And uh, I needed insurance before I could go down in there because I, I could also lose this equipment um, the first day. Somebody could rob me of my equipment and I'd be owing $30,000. Wow. And eventually I met this homeless man named Matthew, who was one of the scariest people I'd ever encountered. He was a frightening individual. He was massively built, very powerful. And uh, um, he was walking one day through Riverside Park on a sunny Sunday afternoon when it was the park was filled with children and their parents playing in little sandlots. And he was walking down the street with nothing on but a pair of karate pants and his arms were held out to either side. He was holding a cinder block in both arms. 
he was trying to hold him up and see how far he could walk without lowering his arms, holding cinder blocks. And he was doing an extraordinary job and sweat was pouring out of him. He was this ferocious looking figure. People were flocking out of his way because they were, he was so ferocious to look at. I found out that he was one of the mole people. He lived underground. So I befriended him and I said, Matthew, I want you to be my insurance policy when I go down into the tunnel. Oh. And, yeah. And he thought about this for a moment and he turned to me and he said, Chris, I know what would happen. He said, I'd become your best buddy and I'd tell you everything that ever happened to me and that you'd find out things about me I've never told anyone. And you'd, you'd buy me coffee and pizza and donuts and we'd just become the best of chums for as long as you were going to make your movie. And then when the movie would end, you're going to vanish. You'll change your cell phone number. I won't know where you are anymore. He said, that's what will happen. Wow. And why would I want to do that? Right. And I... I realized that he was right. So I sat there dumbfounded and thought, well, I guess that's not going to work either. And then he reached out his hand and took my hand in in this vice-like grip. And he said, Chris, if you promise me that you'll devote your life to helping people in my situation, it doesn't have to be me, but people like me. Just make me a promise that you'll devote your life to helping people in my predicament and I'll do your movie. And I said, I promise. Now, Sharon, the thing is, I, I didn't mean it. I just wanted to say <laughs> yes. But everything he predicted came true. Over the period of that summer, we became very close friends. And he did tell me everything about himself. And I learned it was one of the most tragic stories I'd ever encountered. And uh, he really was um, someone who, who needed a friend. And I even at one point ended up going with him to Bellevue, the psychiatric hospital, in the middle of the night to get him admitted when he had a psychiatric breakdown. And I stayed there all night with him. At the end of that summer, I had a movie. And I realized that the promise that I'd made to him had to be kept. It was a promise not to Matthew, just to Matthew. It was a promise also to God. So that's when I went back to the church where I'd been helping in the soup kitchen. And I said, let's see if we can do more than just feed hungry people. Let's create a program that can really be transformative and address the needs of the people we're trying to serve. And they they trusted me and Basically, that became the rest of my life. Wow. I definitely didn't know that story, Chris. Yeah. So that was my entree into the world of homelessness. Did you ever see him again after that summer? Yes. About uh, 10 years after I started running that program, I left to come to Washington and I sought him out to get his blessing. Um, and he was doing much, much better. He, he had a place to live. He had permanent support of housing and he had a little volunteer job. His health had improved. And uh, he basically gave me his uh, 100% blessing to, to move to Washington and continue my work here. So that was, that was great. Wow. That's some story. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us for our premiere episode. LaSharon, your story does inspire, and you're an incredible champion of our program. For all those listening, if you'd like to learn more about Homestretch, please visit our website at homestretchva.org. Again, that's homestretchva.org. And please register for our virtual benefit breakfast, which is on Thursday, May 6th at 8 a.m. It's only an hour, but it's a riveting hour filled with fantastic testimonies of graduates like the Sharon will talk about how their life was transformed by coming into Homestretch.
you won't be disappointed. Thank you. Thank you.